Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedicase. And now, get ready to think. Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedicase. I'm Joel Sedicase, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Now, a couple things right off the bat, a little bit of housekeeping like I always like to do. First thing you're probably going to notice is my super epic mustache is back. And um, for those of you listening on audio later on, um, man, I got to tell you, you're missing out because it is a thing to behold. We said a case men don't grow wonderful facial hair, but one thing we do grow is mustaches. So I got the mustache back, so that's happening. Second thing you might have noticed is that my bookshelf behind me, I'm here in the Think Institute study, my bookshelves are empty. They're, they're devoid of books, and yet I'm surrounded by boxes. Why is that? It's because we are moving the Think Institute study and my family out of the city of Chicago, where we've lived now for about four years consecutively, and then we lived um, for a few years prior to that uh, years ago. But we're moving out of the city of Chicago. We are moving to a strategic location in Chicagoland. More about that later. But uh, we're in transition, and I got to tell you, I'm going to miss the city of Chicago. One of the things that I love about Chicago is the people that you meet around the city. So a few weeks ago, our realtor, I mentioned we're moving, our realtor, who's a good friend of mine, Romy, tells me, hey, I um, I was just having lunch with uh, the, a friend of mine, and uh, I, I, have you ever met him? And his name his name is Caldoun. And I said, no, I, I've, no, I've never met him. He goes, oh, you'd really like this guy. He's really, he's an, he's an apologetics guy like you, and uh, you know, you, you gotta meet him. I said, okay. Well, like the next day, Pastor Rafe, who, if you watch Worldview Wednesdays, you know Pastor Rafe. Pastor Rafe hits me up and tells me he's having lunch with Caldoun. And it turns out it's the same Caldoun. How many Caldouns on there are there? I don't know. In in Jordan, there might be a whole sea of Caldouns, but I've only ever met one. And he was having lunch with Pastor Rafe. And, and I thought, this is too good to be true. I got to meet this guy. So we met up and we had an amazing conversation. And in the course of that conversation, we got to talking about society. And Caldoun um, has this great thing that he does where he'll he'll drop this truth bomb on you right at the end of the, the conversation to leave you wanting more conversation. So we'll see if he does that today. But let me tell you about Caldoun because I've been very privileged now to get to know him for the last few weeks. And... Um, let me tell you about our, our guest today. So I'm joined by Caldoun Swice, who is a Christian apologist and an international speaker. Dr. Swice is a Jordanian-American and associate professor of philosophy at Olive Harvey College right here in Chicago. He serves as a tutor in philosophy with Oxford University in England. He has taught philosophy and apologetics for over a decade and spoke at conferences both nationally and abroad. He has authored three books and is a member of the American Philosophical Association and the EPS, the Evangelical Philosophical Society. Dr. Swice is also the founder of the Socratic Project, which hosts debates and discussions on critical issues of our time and addresses the ultimate questions of life. Uh, Dr. Swice's 
Website is Logically Faithful. You can check that out. We're going to talk about that more as we go. And today he joins me to talk about the institutions that serve as the pillars of society. What are they? Who controls them? How can Christians influence them in today's world? So without any further ado, Dr. Caldun Swice, welcome to the Think Podcast. It is a pleasure and an honor to be here. And the mustache is epic. <laughs> uh, brother, brother, I'll tell you what's epic is the chance that you and I finally get the opportunity to have this conversation because it's something that I have really been looking forward to. If for no other reason, if nobody else benefits from this conversation, which I know many people are going to benefit from it, but if no one else does, I have just been looking forward to picking your brain on this topic ever since you dropped that knowledge bomb on me when we were out to lunch with Rafe. So thank you so much for joining me, man. It's an honor, brother. It's an honor. Um, why don't we get started by just talking about your background? You know, you're you're a Jordanian American. What brought you to this country? How did you get into apologetics? And what do you spend your time focusing on? <laughs> what got me here? Well, the uh, the process is, is a fascinating one. I've been um, uh, I came on the plane. My mother tells me uh, kicking and screaming uh, from uh, three years old. Uh, we uh, immigrated to the United States for economic reasons. It was a wonderful journey for my family, my mother and father. My mother had 14 brothers and sisters. And in those, uh, most of them immigrated to California, New Mexico area, on the West Coast there. And we came together as a family to grow and to um, develop and to populate like rabbits. Uh, I, I got into uh, the economy and uh, as, a, as a child, I got, became an American citizen when I was five years old. And I remember they were asking me so many questions. And I, uh, one of the major questions they asked was, who's the first president of the United States? And of course, I knew that one, George Washington. And by the way, he may have wooden teeth. I still remember uh, that. Uh, uh, I became a very in inquisitive little, little, little bugger, uh, asking so many questions that they ended up putting a sign on my desk that said, I Caldun could only ask five questions an hour. No way. Seriously? I found out later on as I began to grow and develop that you can actually get paid to ask questions. <laughs> so I chose philosophy uh, as a major later on, and it's been a revolutionary. God's really opened up incredible doors for me, um, revolutionized my life, and given me a sense of hope and purpose like no other. That's incredible. So how did you come to start Logically Faithful? And, and tell us about that. Sure, sure. Uh, I've been studying apologetics for a long time. Uh, it's been a, uh, a love of mine and trying to find the truth and the grounding for the faith, not just believing something based on the charlatans and belief systems of sociological elite and religion or society. I wanted to know what I believed was actually true, not just what has been passed on to me from my culture, my family, my community. Uh, so that was one of the impetus behind that. Uh, logically, faith will begin to grow as I, I started thinking about that, but I had lost, um, I lost a son. Uh, in 2006, and it was a very difficult period of my life, a devastating period. I didn't know how to deal with the uh, existential crisis that comes along with that. I didn't know how to bring to bear the academic learning and apologetics and the grounding of truth epistemologically to my life, existentially speaking. So I went through a type of a cataclysmic internal cataclysm. And I emerged from that. God was able to take me through that and through my faith 
in him guiding me through that i was able to take the knowledge i learned as an anchor to say look what i believe about the resurrection of jesus of nazareth is actually true grounded in history supported by science backed up by logic this evidence gives me the grounding and the hope that i will see my little boy enoch again and one day we will walk on streets of gold together because jesus rose from the dead and because there's evidence for that beyond my emotional belief uh, feelings and um existential crises i can believe it because it's true yeah and that gave me hope and i was able to use that hope to now help others who are going through crises and cataclysmic events and traumas in their own lives and is that a focus for you right now in um in your apologetics is is dealing with what we might call the existential problem of evil and helping people understand their suffering exactly yes it is uh through a period of one-on-one -on -one coaching or speaking in general or writing blogging podcasting things of that nature yeah I'm everything i can at my disposal uh, the lord tells us freely you have received freely give so whatever god has given you wherever he has put you you need to blossom where that is Do the best you can with what he's given you and he'll honor that amen amen um caldoon just for the sake of our viewers at home could i ask you to aim your camera a little bit up a little bit the uh the we can't we can't see all your bookshelves there in the background you know oh. Oh, and and your face too we, we want to see all your face as well but but look at look at that bookshelf, man. I mean, that's that's very uh, that's very impressive. That's very impressive. I, I, I expect nothing less uh, from a scholar of your repute. But uh, but no, that's that's wonderful, man. Um, yeah, and yes, it is. And thank you for sharing that. Um, and so your 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 current situation, Caldoun, is so fascinating to me because so we're going to talk about the pillars of society, but you are actively engaged in one of those pillars right now teaching at olive harvey college in the city of chicago That's so right. here you are you're you're an open christian you know you're not shy about the fact that you're a believer in jesus christ um that that comes out very early on in in uh you know when someone t speaks to you and you know all someone has to do is google your name and they see your lectures and your podcasts and your website so what's a nice guy like you doing in a doing at a a secular institution like olive harvey how do you balance those two worlds olive harvey's college is one of seven city colleges in chicago it is a um, heavily uh secular because it is definitely not a christian college per se although many there are many christians there uh, many people of different faiths as well uh, god has strategically put me there and um, opened the door for me uh, at one level I, when i was applying for the job we had four under 400 other applicants for the similar positions that i was applying for so um it was god's grace that opened the door for me and uh, got me in there and i'm able to make a difference in the best way i can so not only do i teach uh, at least before pre-covid <laughs> I would give seminars. I would engage my uh, colleagues, um, provide uh, feedback uh, in the in administration, be part of committees, uh, provide um, uh, what's called breakout sessions for faculty to grow and learn how to better engage your, your students, how to make wow presentations, uh, things of that nature. So where God put me there, I want to be able to help and engage these people there because they are people as well. Um, but the institution is very secular. It's more leftist than anything, of course, Illinois being a blue state. Uh, so it's God needs God puts people where he wants them to be and he put me there and I I've been flourishing there as to the best of my ability 
That's incredible. So why don't we just use that as a springboard to talk about the the pillars of society? And now this is something that, um, as you know, I, I've been texting you about, you know, if, uh, right. hey, Caldoon, what were those pillars of society again? And, and you respond. And um, the way you present them, um, I really like, although they're, they're you, as you know, I have one sticking point with the way that you present them uh, and, and the ones you identify. I think that there's one, I'm going to say right now, I think that there's one that ought to be in the list that, that you don't put in the list. And, sure. and um, I want to know why you don't put it in the list. But first, let's talk about what are the, the pillars of society. And, um, as, and then we can talk about as Christians, who controls those pillars and what should be our attitude and approach toward those pillars. So, so what do you say are the, the pillars of society? Sure. So these are the major pillars of influence in society. If you want to influence a community or a culture, these are the major pillars that make that difference, specifically living in the West today. Uh, they are as follows, and I have six here. Uh, I have entertainment or Hollywood. You have the government, local and national. That's two. Three, news, which is the news media, such as CNN, BBC, NBC, etc. Number four is the academy, the educational institutions of the world. Number five is sports, the NBA, NFL. And six is the corporations, such as APAC, oil, Target, FedEx, Apple, etc. Those are the major um, pillars that are affecting culture and infecting culture with whatever it is they want to influence it with. And I think most of those are very and heavily secular. In their, uh, in their approach, in the, in the way they uh, engage the world. And some of them in the last, at least the last five or six decades have been heavily and more and more leftist or liberal. Okay, and, and um, so notably missing from the list sure. is anything having to do with church or religion uh, even uh, there's there's you know nonprofit there's nothing there. Um, to, why first of all, how did you? Is this a list that have you come up with this list, or did you get this from from somewhere else, or uh, or is it a combination of both? And then why do you exclude religion or church from that list? The religion and church have been heavily influential in culture pre-enlightenment and after the enlightenment. But with the advent of secularism, Joel, the advent of the growth of privatization of religious beliefs, institutions, and practices on a global level, specifically in the West, what you have is the rise of secularism has limited the social impact and the influence of institutions that are religious, such as the church, on the everyday conversations of the people in the West. Now, this is not necessarily the people in the East per se, like in Islamic cultures or Eastern cultures, um, the church or the academy or uh, in that regard, or the mosque, for example, are heavily influential in their cultures. Um, but in the West, secularism has had its sway. It's growing and continues to grow. And that has limited the influence of it. So, for example, if you were to take a, a talk show, like maybe um, uh, Anderson Cooper's 360, very popular on CNN, and you have four people on the panel, you have uh, somebody from the NFL, somebody from the academy, so let's say Harvard University or some of the Ivy League schools, maybe you have somebody from Fox News there, a local government official, or even a Hollywood uh, personality um, could be on there. 
And then you have a priest or a pastor. The one who would be given the less, the least amount of credentials or authority would be that, that priest or that pastor, unfortunately. Wow. So, so that's, uh, as you're looking at the, just the situation in which we live, particularly in the West, you see the church having been really sidelined, it sounds like. You talked about the privatization of religion. Um, I remember years ago hearing a talk by Oz Guinness Ooh. where he really surprised me. He said that the privatization of religion in the United States, which we might trace to something like the removal of prayer in public schools or something like that, but he traced it all the way back 100 years ago to like the late 1800s, early 1900s, he said around that time, religion started to be viewed more as a personal matter rather than a matter of public discourse and public um, public influence. Do you, do you agree with that analysis or do you, where do you trace the roots of that privatization of religion? It's hard to pinpoint where it would be, of course. Uh, I, I'm not sure I have to take a look at some of the work that you talk about, Oz Guinness there. Uh, but I do know that, the irony of it is just uh, not lost on me, of course. The institutions such as hospitals, scientific institutions, churches, have the one, who have been the ones who started the academy. They're the ones who started the growth of the, of the Harvards, the Yales, the Oxfords. Those were started by Christians to put those together as a way to explain and exemplify the gospel by teaching people education and teaching people sciences, teaching people literature, teaching people in, uh, in sociology. So the irony of it is the church is the one that started these. It started the humanitarian organizations such as hospitals. But that organization has been sidelined in the conversation, the public conversation uh, per se. Although a lot of what is coming out of the church, such as growth in my field in philosophy, has been exploding in Christian in, in philosophy of religion field. It's been really growing and making a major influence. Um, if I can pinpoint it for you, I don't know if I could do you know a date or something to that effect, but I do know um, that we do have an influence, but it's not as much as we would like it to be. Okay, so what should be the Christian's attitude towards these pillars of societal influence? Is this something, um, should we be striving to, to influence them? Should we be striving to create our own parallel pillars? Should we be working to, you know, it reincorporate Christianity and the church as an, another pillar alongside the other ones? Or what's, uh, what do you think about that? There's an old analogy is coming that called the keeper of the well or keeper of the springs, excuse me, if I put it that way, the keeper of the springs. The keeper of the spring is the one who makes sure that the spring does not have any of the poisons or uh, droppings from animals and things of that nature that go into it because that spring flows into a town. And the keeper of the spring is the one who keeps it clean and pure for the people. And there came a time when the people in the town decided that we don't need the keeper. We can do this on our own. Keeper. Mm. And then the spring began or the, the stream began to get muddied and poisoned. People began to get sick. The church created by God is the center civilization center of civilization's um, connection to the divine. The church is the body of Christ on earth. It's the transcendental connection to God. And when I say church, I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about the people of God. And when 
the society begins to cut off that influence, you will start seeing the poison in culture, in, in, in Hollywood, in government, in medicine, in biotechnology. Things will start getting affected on a mass scale. And then what ends up happening is people start calling the people back, the keepers of the the well, uh, the spring, the, the keepers of the, 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 the well, to come back in and say, hey, hey, we need some we need something to stop this. We need something to, to filter it out. Hmm. But we're called in culture to, to call people back to reason and logic and evidence, which is grounded in the Logos himself, which is Christ. And I think that when we are called back to be the keepers, we, we explain that we need to have a grounding in evidences, a grounding in logic, a grounding in ethics, a grounding in the good, the true, and the beautiful, the grounding in what the, uh, the great philosophers of the past, Plato, Aristotle, have argued for well, that once you start cutting the mind off from what feels good to what is good, you end up with a detrimental result on culture and society. The church already is one of the major, if not the major pillar in culture. It's just been sidelined as a least important. Wow. Important. And what we need to do as believers is bring that up and say, no, uh, the keeper of the spring, guys. Is the church now? Let me say this. This is important. Um, one of the major um, uh, mantras in culture is to have an open mind, right? Uh, we need to be open-minded, man. Open mind. Right. Okay, yeah, open mind. But an open mind, if it doesn't have any filters to it, becomes problematic to the highest level. Let me explain what I mean. The only thing that welcomes anything, everything, and rejects nothing, is a sewer. The only thing that welcomes everything and rejects nothing is a sewer. Is that what we want our, what our minds to be? Do we want our, our, our educational institutions to be? Do we want our government to be? Do we want our movies and our culture and our social media to be? We need filters up, not only personally, but societally as well. And the church provides the feedback and the grounding for that rooted in theology and in, ancient, in the ancient scriptures. Man, that's really good. It reminds me of... Uh... G.K. Chesterton quote where it says, you know, the mind is like the mouth. Um, it's it, it's meant to be open in order to close on something solid. Exactly. You know, yeah. 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 I capitalized on that from. Yeah, that, that's that's really good. Um, so so as you think about so it sounds to me and it tell me if I'm understanding you correctly, Khaldun, the Christian's approach to these pillars of influence is it. Well, should, so in your analogy, the people in the town come back to the the keeper of the spring and they say, we need your help again. Um, I don't see a lot of that happening, or maybe I'm just maybe I'm just not seeing something that is happening. Should we as as believers, should we be calling society back to that? Should we be going into the town saying, hey, um, you know, uh, you you all need the church, you need Jesus, you, you know, we need to get the church back as not only a pillar of society, but a pillar of influence in society. Is that something we ought to be advocating for? Or do we just say, you know what, this town is filled with sewage now. It's too open. We need to go create our own town, or we need to forego living in towns altogether and go out and, and live in the country. Uh, you know, kind of like the early monastics. Right. Um, what, what, what do you, what do you think about that? What's our approach? Christians have been divided on how to do this, such as being uh, Christ in culture, Christ against culture, Christ for culture. There, right. there are different ways that Newman has put this together in his in his writings in the past. But and D. A. Carson wrote a recent book on that as well. Uh, what we my my contention is, 
we are already in the culture. Christ calls us to be um, in the world, right? Uh, but not part of the or, or, or influential from the world. I think um, the verse I'm referring to uh, where Christ himself says, be in the world, but not of the world. Well, basically he's saying there, and if you read that um, in context is be in the world, but don't become uh, infected by the world. And how do you do that? Well, first off, you feed your mind, you feed your soul, you surround yourself with the good, the true, and the beautiful. And that does not just include your friends, your family, your, your, your community, but also what you watch, what you listen to, what you read. All these things influence your spirit. And then you go out into the world and you make a difference with your light. Uh, you connect to the people around you. Um, so with these major institutions out there, uh, instead of retrieving into ourselves and creating our own Zion, which we actually did in Zion, Illinois, or creating our own uh, community, which I'm, I'm very much against that. Uh, I know there are some cultures, some Christians who say we should do that. So you're not but, in favor of the Benedict, uh, the Benedict option? Uh, I love the Benedict option. The Benedict option says start from, your, from, the, from the ground up. Build okay little communities together and don't keep those to yourselves though reach out with them reach out to the public school okay reach out to the communities reach out to the local um baseball game and be part of the local high school uh get involved with apple computer go get a job there make a difference uh you're an actor and you have a wonderful skill level to influence people to be entertaining get involved in in the uh in hollywood make a difference there but my, 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 my contention is, um, and this is what the problem comes in, where the difference between the left and the right, Republicans and Democrats, uh, the conservative movement in the United States specifically in the last five to 10 uh, decades has been primarily from the top down, influence the government, connect to the people. The liberals or the left has been moving up from the ground up where they influence the culture. The culture begins to move toward a leftist ideology, a more secular ideology. And then finally that moves up into government where you have the White House draped in a rainbow flag. Right. And that did not happen overnight. It's not the government that made it legal then suddenly the people accepted it. No, no, no. The people have been accepting, for example, gay marriage. For a long time, it's becoming more and more of an open culture in that regard, more and more secular, more and more leftist from the ground up through Hollywood, through movies, through entertainment, through education, through the academy, through the publishing of books. And people have begun to influence each other at a mass scale. And then that finally connected from the government level downward. And then the government made the laws. Um, Stephen Petro wrote a book a number of years ago called Why Conservatives Win Elections and Co Liberals Win the Culture Wars. What he's arguing there is even if we as conservatives win the next election, which I think Trump is going to win by a landslide, by the way. If that, if that happens, as, a, as a crew employee, I, I can't um, endorse any. Uh, I can't even make it seem like I'm endorsing any I'm candidate. Not I'm giving you what my thoughts are. I think it's not leaning yeah. toward that. I think uh, uh, progressiveness in culture has pushed people to the level where they want to jump into the political arena and make a difference at the high level of the land. Mm. But that's not influencing the people underneath the masses of us, uh, the people around us in Hollywood and in education and in government and in sports and other areas. So as Christians, what I recommend, what I do is where I'm working, I will blossom. I will flourish where I'm planted. I will reach out to the people around me. I'll share the gospel. So Frederick Nietzsche. In his, um, in his work on the God is Dead movement, which has been very popular in the last uh, um, few, few decades, um, he, he talks about the madman walking in the street declaring the death of God. 
we are called to do the opposite, to walk in the streets and, re and declare the resurrection of God from the dead. And that resurrection of Christ from the dead is a hope for all of us, a, a, a rejuvenation for us a, that gives us a re renovation of the heart to be able to see that God himself loves us enough to come into the world. And he said, the, my church is my people, and these people shall not shall be able to overcome the gates of hell, and the gates of hell shall not be able to rise up against it. Those people are to proclaim that in the streets, not standing there screaming in the streets, but doing them primarily with our lifestyle. As a plumber, for example, I'll walk into somebody's house. I'll do my job better than anyone else has ever done it. Amen. As a, uh, as a teacher, I will teach with my heart, with all my heart. I will, I will pour myself into my students. Whatever it is I, that God calls me to do, I will do it with all my strength and all my might. As a believer, I'll make a difference first off by my life, secondarily by my proclamation. Okay, so, so you, you, you would advocate for Christians going into society rather and and influencing these institutions from within uh so to maybe put a little bit of the rubber on the road there would you say um you know should christians be in hollywood uh working within movie studios or do christians start their own movie studios do we do do christians move to hollywood caldoon or do they you know do they turn uh i don't know Branson, Missouri into the next Hollywood or or Nashville, Tennessee into the next Hollywood or, or do, do you know what I'm saying? Do we do we create competing structures then or it sounds like you're saying we work within the existing structures to uh, to reform them from within. I think there's a serious problem of trying to create our own organizations and we could do that. There are many there are many good ones, many good Christian organizations in Hollywood and in, in education. Um, I'm part of one in, in the philosophy arena, the Evangelical Philosophical Society, just, just one example. There are many in, um, in, in Hollywood faith-based organizations that are primarily based on bringing forward Christian uh, influences in the movie industry by creating specifically movies that are centered on gospel truths. I think that's wonderful. That's great. Uh, let's do that. But at the same time, why can't we be, be part of the institutions like, for example, the, uh, the Academy Awards? Very heavily leftist, right? Very heavily liberal. Why can't we be part of that and share um, the good, the true, and the beautiful there? Why can't we be part of the NFL or the, uh, or the NBA or uh, Apple computers at the high corporate level? And there are people on the high levels on the, in Facebook as well. There are Christians there. There are believers in every part, in every sphere. God has us everywhere. I think we should um, not try to compartmentalize our faith into mm. an organization because it's dangerous. I've seen it done uh, where people create a, a type of Christian subculture, and the Christians, the children grow up in that. What happens to those children? Mm. They become lackadaisical. They become lazy. They become effeminate um, because they take their faith for granted. I think mm. unhealthy pushback, you can't really grow. Yeah. Oh, you know, that that's very interesting you say that because I often credit the fact that I'm in a, a, sort of the apologetic realm myself. I mean, the Think Institute is more than apologetics, but right. the, the fact that I grew up and became an apologist has a lot to do with where I grew up. I mean, I grew up in Chicagoland and all, at least from middle school on, I was 
very much fed through the public school system a steady diet of secularism of uh, 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 well world worldly thinking and you know all the movements that have sort of now coalesced into wokeness and leftism and um, have sort of jumped on this neo-marxist cultural Marxist bandwagon right. I was getting that stuff fed to me. So I cut my teeth. I remember in high school, junior year, debating with my English professor or English teacher, you know, who was, who was uh, very much uh, pumping into the classroom. A lot of the things that we're seeing people rioting over in the streets right now, not a lot of, um, not a lot of information, more like a lot of feelings and a lot of emotionally based arguments. And so I really learned how to debate and, and, and challenge those ideas in a way that would get my voice heard um and i i would have missed that if i not that i'm a huge advocate for the public schools today in fact i quite the opposite um speaking of as i am to someone who teaches at a chicago university but um but i know that because my parents instilled in me a strong foundation of biblical faith and because I was operating in a context where I had to have a serrated edge, I had to sharpen my 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 blade, right. my sword. I had to know what God's word said and to know how to present that to a hostile audience. That really affected me, mm. and um, and so you know there there's something to that. Whereas if I had grown up in a you know a tight Christian bubble with no exposure to what people out there believe, I think things probably would have turned out very differently. You is that that pushback don't you yeah i i'm i'm actually very grateful for the pushback i needed to know how to i needed to know how to deal with that pushback and, and you mentioned the as, as you were getting that pushback in the, uh, the neo-marxism and the growth of um of secularism and culture so the, the zygust or the spirit of the age is strong right it's it's moving the culture toward either a complete right ideology which is uh, the most Explicit example I can think of is the invasion of Iraq, which is senseless war, corporate greed, misogyny, materialism. Then on the left, you have anti-family, anti-masculinity, um, toxic femininity, if I may put it that way, or toxic, yeah. toxic feminism, yeah. secularization or sexualization of culture, mm -hmm. hedonism, Marxism, etc. And these, the, the, you have a push pushback on both sides, and I think you need both of that in a healthy democracy or republic, a yin and a yang. You need both of those to to balance out that culture. One to look at the negatives of American culture, for example, uh, to see how we can improve that, and one to look at the the positives and the patriarchy uh, of it and the uh, patriotism of it, and to help move that forward as well. I think both of those are a healthy um, way of looking at that, rather than um, isolating ourselves and seeing people as ideological ideologues on one one side or another. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So columnist David Berry put it this way regarding the left and the right. He said, do we truly believe that all red state residents are ignorant, racist, fascist, knuckle-dragging, NASCAR-obsessed, cousin-marrying, roadkill-eating, tobacco-juice-dribbling, gun-fondling, religious fanatic rednecks? Or do we believe all blue state residents are godless, unpatriotic, nose-pierced, Volvo-driving, France-loving, left-wing communist, latte-sucking, tofu chopping, holistic, wacko, neurotic, vegan, vegan burger eaters. <laughs> the, the point is both sides of you are stereotyping each other. I remember listening right. to a, uh, a talk on NPR, and they were talking about uh, local Trump 
supporters. And every guest on that show, and they had about four, was putting the uh, people who voted for Trump in either one of two categories. They're ignorant, you know, the, the light bulb's not lighting up upstairs somehow, or they're malevolent, they're racist, uh, secretly members of the KKK. And I think we, or conservatives, do the same thing maybe to liberals. They're either, you know, either ignorant or there's something diabolical on them and they want to bring down the entire Western civilization. When we start doing that to people, we no longer see them as made in the image of God, human beings. We are not to be fighting people. We fight ideologies. Right. Ideologies are not created equal, but people are. Right. Man, that's that's super helpful to to keep that in mind, Caldoun, because you know things are getting more and more polarized, and you know we, good grief, we've been saying that for decades, haven't we? All oh, things are getting more polarized, but it's really true, and you know, uh, Jordan Peterson talks about the dangers of becoming an ideologue, where you're um, you are just consumed by your ideology. In this case, it would be like a political ideology, where you by your own survival really for the survival of your identity depends on demonizing the other side. Mm. And that's why I, I love Ephesians six because right after it tells you how to put on the armor of God, then it says, and we don't, uh, we, we, well, I know, sorry, right before that, it says we wage war, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and, um, you know, spiritual forces of, of darkness and heavenly places. And it's like, look, we're fighting an unseen enemy that is, um, you know, some of the weapons that they have are ideological weapons. Don't become a slave to your ideology. Instead, transcend that with the spiritual weapons that God has given you, which, you know, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the shield of faith, by which we extinguish the enemy's uh, uh, flaming arrows, you know, the belt we've girded our loins with the gospel. It's like we're out there as gospel warriors and sometimes we're going to slash left, sometimes we're going to slash right, but we judge everything by scripture, by God's word, not by the political ideology um, that we've adopted, you know, uh, that mm -hmm. that that is closest to us. Now, one, one thing I, I do want to say, and I want to know if you agree with this, is as we examine the political spectrum and we do test everything by scripture, by God's word, we're going to, it's okay to find ourselves aligning more with one side than the other based on how that side, how close the two sides come to God's word. And so I, I, I see you nodding your head. For those at home, he is nodding his head. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the danger that I, I want us to avoid, Caldew, and again, I can't endorse political candidates, but what I can say is that we don't, as Christians, the definition of a Christian is not necessarily a political centrist. So if there is one of the two parties that aligns more with Christian values, biblical values, it's perfectly fine to go in that direction insofar as they align with God's word. That doesn't mean we go with them all the way. It doesn't mean, you know, we become uh, ideologues, but it's perfectly fine to, to um, engage with that side of the spectrum for the sake of advancing the cause of Jesus Christ. And then guess what? If that political party starts to turn and they start to go in an unbiblical direction in certain key areas, we say, hey, listen, sorry, can't go with you there because my allegiance is to Christ, not to you. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, we, we can't 
pigeonhole one side as being Christian and one side is not being not being Christian, right? That's right. That, just that's just uh, uh, unfair. The highest level of it. The um, I remember a passage in the, the book of Joshua where uh, the Lord God appears, uh, or the angel of the Lord appears and tells um, Joshua that I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. And this is God telling us, I'm not here to be on your ideological uh, side of wherever you are on the, the spectrum, right or left. There are some wonderful things that leftist ideology has helped, especially the poor and immigration um, um, and then in that regard. But there are other things that are very dangerous and damning on the left that, are, that we cannot ignore. Um, and, and Trump being ironically uh, one of the champions of Christendom, which is ironic coming from somebody like him, right? Uh, somebody who's um, proposing uh, principles and laws that are actually helping uh, Christendom move forward, and the left moving and creating a cancel culture that's cutting out anybody who's saying anything that's um, problematic or questioning ideologies, like, like, for example, Black Lives Matter, which is a wonderful organization that brought forward, not the organization, the wonderful view, the wonderful idea that brought forward the um, disparity in race and racism issues and culture. But Black Lives Matter, the organization, is full of Marxist tendencies and a, um, an ideology that's completely un-American, unpatriotic, and unchristian. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't know if you saw this, but in the last couple of days, they actually deleted their very controversial What We Believe page on their website. Mm. And, you know, that was the page that everybody pointed to, to say, look, they want to dismantle the family, you right. know, they, um, they're, they're very selective and they're, 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 um, in the black lives that they are promoting, they, uh, this is actually more of an anti-justice movement. Uh, it's not, it has nothing to do with biblical justice or, or Christianity. And they removed the page and, you know, I didn't know that, but I'm not shocked. Right. Well, Caldoun, you know, as, as believers, we know that Jesus Christ is in control of the whole universe. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be amazing? if this was the first step towards seeing Black Lives Matter as an organization, turn a corner. How, look, why couldn't God do this? Why couldn't, why couldn't someone evangelize the founders um, and the leaders of Black Lives Matter, of BLM, and why couldn't they become Christians? And then can you imagine the influence that that organization, right up until the point when they got canceled, <laughs> but can you imagine the influence that that organization could have for good if their leaders became Christians. I mean, look mm -hmm. at the apostle Paul. He was, you know, he was, he was, uh, you know, uh, uh, God's law matters. Uh, he was, you know what I mean? He was old covenant matters and he persecuted Christians and he wanted to dismantle the church and God saved him. And he ended up being canceled by the Pharisees, but he ended up doing such incredible good for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And um, so I'm just saying that wouldn't be outside of the scope of possibility of what God could do. Of course, yeah, that would be amazing. That would be wonderful. And that's why I'm advocating that as believers, we need to be infiltrating these societies, these organizations with his truth and his goodness and his love. Um, and the more we influence our cultures by being in them rather than retreating from them, the more we can be a light to the world around us. Uh, we are not called to create our own uh, Christian ideological organizations and step aside from that per se, but we are to be Christ wherever we are, whether it means creating our own uh, your school or uh, soccer team, whatever it is, as well as connecting to and being part of uh, the, the major pillars of society so we can be that light, be that Christ, be that scent. I'm always 
something that's very important to me is wherever I go, whoever, whoever I'm with, Joel, the question I have to ask myself is this. Am I leaving a fragrance for Christ? Or am I leaving a stench when I walk away? People, are they going to remember me by what I did, how I made them feel, much more so than what, um, how, or what I said, per se? Uh, that is just the reality of life. How do I make people feel when I'm with them? What kind of fragrance am I leaving behind? Yeah, that's, man, that's really good. And you know, um, the the crazy thing too is that when you leave behind that fragrance, 2 Corinthians 2.16 says, to the one, we are an odor of death and demise. To the other, a fragrance that brings life. Mm. And so you can leave the fragrance of Christ and if, you, if you're being faithful in that, you're doing the right thing, even if it's perceived by some as a fragrance of death. Mm. Because let's let's be honest, it is you are gonna you are gonna be countercultural, right? I mean, there's th th it's it's gonna happen. And so if people are being driven by these ideologies and they hear the gospel that says, hey, look, grace is free, there is forgiveness for past sins, even racists can be forgiven. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Or right. Or, you know, with all the controversy over uh, Netflix right now and uh, the basically the soft core child sexuality that they're peddling, mm -hmm. hey, even the makers of cuties can be forgiven. They can be forgiven and redeemed in Jesus Christ. And now some people are going to go, what? No, that's beyond the pale. It's like, no, no, you don't understand. God's grace can cover any sin. And for some people, that's going to be very uh, objectionable. Right. Uh, and you've probably, been, I know I've been in conversations where I've, I've been speaking with atheists and, and I've said, look, God can forgive anybody. And they go, well, no, no, no. Some sins, you know, that, 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 that couldn't, I could never believe in a God who would pardon what, you know, Hitler or whatever. It's like, look, or Trump, or Trump right? <laughs> that's right. Right. That's right. It's like, no, even. Yeah. Yeah. I believe everything you said, except what you said about Trump. Nope. <laughs> right. Trump is irredeemable, right? Well, yeah. that's the problem here. Uh, let me let, let's bring this some practical application here. Please, I was gonna I was gonna ask you to go there. Thank you. So, if um, if you're talking to somebody from a uh, different point of view, let's say uh, the the secular um, leftist old point of view, and I don't mean that all leftists are liberals; they're not. But let's take an example here from the scriptures. So Nathan is um, approaches King David after David has killed um, an innocent man in his own army taken his wife, impregnated her, and had a baby with her. Uh, of course, not only does he commit adultery, he commits murder as well. God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David. What does Nathan do? Oz Guinness does an incredible job of this in his, in his work, and he talks about it a lot in, uh, in that. What it is is this. He does, he, he does what's called flip the table or turn the table. Instead of telling people directly they're wrong and directly they're sinners, Here's what Nathan the prophet does. He tells David a story. And he tells David, one day there was a man who had a, a she, um, a one sheep, one, one lamb that he took care of and cared for like his own daughter and ate from his own plate. His neighbor was a very wealthy man who had many lambs. He had a guest over. Instead of taking one of his lambs to serve for dinner for his guest, he goes to the poor man's house, takes his lamb and kills her and uses her as a um, uh, dinner. Nathan asked David, who happened to be a shepherd in the past, what should be done to that man? David rises from his throne and says, that man should die. And Nathan says, you are the man. You took this one woman. You have multiple wives, David. You have the whole kingdom. And God says, if you wanted more, I would have given you more. But you took that one wife, that one woman. You killed her husband, and you made her your own. 
for what you did has displeased the Lord. Mm. David was convicted deep in his heart. What Nathan did there is he turned the table on him. And I think we could do that too uh, in the secular world. Let me give you an example of hell. Uh, the modern liberal world assumes nothing is sacred, nothing is absolutely true, nothing's universally wrong. They don't deny that God or Jesus exists or the way to heaven, they just don't care. They want to stand up against oppression of minorities and religious bigots and racism that is evident in, in, in all the major movies apart. But here's the problem with that. Take it apart. The same people who tell us there are no universal right or wrongs preach that racism is unjustified and it's evil. They tell us it's um, we should completely remove all absolutes, yet they say it's absolutely wrong to discriminate against transgender individuals. The same people who tell us that it is unacceptable to tell them or tell anyone that God or nobody made God, that's just unacceptable, are the same people who bow their knee in awe when people like Stephen Hawking, who's gone on to his reward or otherwise, tell us that the universe came from absolutely nothing. That is a, a serious flip, what you're doing there. You're showing, hey guys, you're inconsistent in the way you're speaking. The same people who tell Christians that they're intolerant are the same people who are part of what's called the cancel culture now. We don't want to allow creationism to be taught in public schools or biblical views of sexuality. But at the same time, they say we should allow all points of views and, and, uh, and do that. So you have this, this flip back and forth. They say we should base our views on science because science is the only thing we can trust, especially in cases of science, evolution, and global warming. But when you start talking about transgender issues, you throw science and biology out the window and say people can determine whatever they want their biology and their sex to be. We point out to our progressive leftist friends that you're not being consistent. Not only are some people maybe homophobes or Islamophobes, but is it possible there are some people who are Christophobes or Christianophobes? Instead of labeling people these terms, let's start addressing the ideas and separating the person who believes something from what they actually believe. I love my mother. I loved her with all my heart, but she used to smoke two, three packs a day. As a child, my brother and I used to destroy her cigarettes. Of course, that made her upset, um, but she ended up stopping smoking. I was able to love my mom, but not love her smoking habit. Why can't we do the same with people? Love them, but not love what they hold or believe. Let's give that same respect to uh, the Christians and to the uh, other side of the fence. Man, that's great. And you can do that without saying all views are equal. You can you can say all people are equal without saying all views are equal. You alluded to that earlier. Yeah, all people are treated uh, with dignity and respect because they are made in the image of the almighty being himself on the first page of the Bible. Yes. Declares that, right. And then the first, uh, yeah, first chapter of the Bible. Yeah, that that's that's really great because um, you know what's what's amazing about that is the the what you just said what you just stated is a that's a that's a very exclusive view that's a very biblical view. All people are created in the image of the Creator. That that makes all people equal, but that itself is a truth claim that's a proposition that if it's true then which and it is contrary truth claims like ones that say no some people are you know more equal than others as uh uh you know george orwell's animal farm says right, right that would actually be an inferior view so if someone were to hold that view we could go to them and say listen 
you and I are equal and I and I want to treat you as an equal as a person who deserves my respect because you are made in the image of God. But the view that you're espousing is actually it's incorrect and it's harmful. And we've seen how that view plays out in societies. And because of that, I want to try to convince you logically and faithfully to borrow your your organization's name. Um, I want to convince you of that, and I want to propose to you uh, and present you with a better way, the way of Christ, which says not only are people equal in ontology, but we're we're all equally sinners, and we all equally need a Savior. But let me tell let me tell you about that Savior, because mm -hmm. that's how heart change is going to come about. That's how you know that's how people are going to be convinced, if you will. And the best way of doing that is by sharing what He's done in my own life as a testimony. Amen. He's given me hope. He's given me vision. He's given me purpose. He's given me life. And I, I love that, and it's wonderful, and it's awesome. How I'd like to share it with you. Would you be willing to listen? And when people see the vibrancy and see the light in your eyes that he's done for you, um, it's hard for them to deny the reality of what he's done. Yeah. People deny the propositional truth claims that you're making, but they cannot deny that you are actually influenced and um, uh, infected by it in a way that connects to the people around you uh, and, and influences them. Uh, I think we need to point out in ideological discussions that although I respect you, I don't respect your opinion because I think your opinion may actually be wrong and that's okay. Um, but a lot of times people in a maturity level, I think, Joel, that people are unable to separate their view from themselves. For example, if I, uh, if I hold on to a sexual view of ethics and of um, my life and you disagree with that, then you must disagree with me or you may, may find me offensive. No, no, no. I find you as a genuine individual who's special, and precious, excuse me, I'm sorry, precious in, 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 in God's eyes and precious to me. But at the same time, I find your view to be abhorrent and dangerous. Can we separate the two? Can I disagree with your view and still love you? And the people who can't see that, I think, need a maturity level of um, uh, that they need to grow to. Yeah, yeah, that, that's super helpful. Uh, Khaldun, we did get a couple of comments. Do you mind if I just pull them up real quick? Har, Har, you have, do you have a couple of minutes? Yes. Okay, so these aren't so much questions as just uh, comments in response to what we were talking about earlier. So Donna Flenke says, unfortunately, that's a very hard thing to do. I think she's talking about, this is back when we were talking about engaging the the culture, infiltrating institutions. She says, unfortunately, that's a very hard thing to do. and a lot of times the culture ends up influencing those who go into it. So just uh, maybe real quick, Khaldun, how do we safeguard against that? Is there a way to safeguard That's against that? That's a powerful point you made uh, there, Donna. Uh, rather than having us influence culture or evangelize culture, it, the other thing happens the other way around. They influence us, they evangelize us, right? As you see, many churches have just gone into the bandwagon of leftist ideology. Yeah. Uh, of embracing whatever it is that the major culture does at the time. That's why it's so critically important to not separate ourselves from the body of Christ, the church. We are not made to be alone. God specifically told Adam, it is not good for you to be alone. And he, Christ set people off two by two. He established his church as the greatest humanitarian organization in the history of the world. That organization is what you need in your life. You need people around you to rebuke you, to correct you, to encourage you, to uplift you, and to cultivate a character that lifts up the, the knowledge of God in your life. By knowing the scriptures, alone is not enough. Just me, me and Jesus, baby. No, that's not how it works. Jesus created the church for you to be part of. Once you have that solidly grounded, then you can go into the world and make a difference. Amen. If you have that, 
you will be evangelized by the world. You will start speaking their words. You will start telling their jokes. You will start believing their ideology. It's yeah. human nature. Yeah, that's that's um, it's a good word. And uh, Donna followed up with this. She said that her sister went into the film industry with the intention of influencing it, and she's no longer a believer. Mm. And um, so, so uh, a cautionary tale there. Um, and then she said, good point to follow up. Um, I'm I'm buzzing through these because I want to get to one from Curtis Cutler. And then there's two I want to show you that you'll appreciate. Yeah. Um, Curtis Cutler says, yeah, sometimes Christian organizations are like echo chambers. It, I think we've we've seen this, right? Right. That's that's true. That's why we have to uh, surround our uh, be out once we're grounded in what we believe and why we believe it, which is apologetics and theology. Then we can go outside and engage the world around us, so we don't have an amen chamber around us. Right. 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 Um, all right. And then uh, two more comments I have to pull up here. So Romy, a name that we both recognize here, Romy Alariu says, "Oh, this is just this is just." I just wanted to put this out because it's just great. He says, hey, my two favorite apologists, looking forward to catching up on this when the podcast is released. All right. Well, good, man. And I highly recommend Mr. Romy, the best uh, realtor in Chicago. I I second that 100%. If you, if you need a realtor, I can't endorse a politician, but I can endorse a realtor. Uh, so definitely check out Romy Alariu. Um, and then finally, uh, Rafe Chenery, another brother that we both know and love. In fact, the one that that introduced me to you. And, and actually I just had, uh, I just took a walk with Rafe in the South loop earlier today. Right. And, um, he says, yes, Christians must create culture. Who do you think is doing this best right now? That's a great question. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that too. Who is doing that best? Mm -hmm. uh, well, there are many organizations that are just incredibly well, well done. I'll put together. There are great Christian schools. There's, in Chicago, we have some um, uh, the classic schools, for example. Catholics have doing that. Um, there are some evangelical organizations around the country. I, I don't name specifically ones at the top of my head. But creating an organization that feeds the people, the good, the true, and the beautiful, grounded in scripture, grounded in theology, backed up by apologetics, creates the army of God that goes into the world to make a difference. If you send those people out, like Donna said, for example, her sister going into Hollywood, without that grounding, without that basis, you end up having them influenced and affected by and evangelized by the culture around them. Um, who do I think is doing that best today? Uh, I can't name specific ones. Maybe we can come back to that and put that in the show notes later. Yeah, that, that's that's great. Um, Rafe, feel free. If you've got somebody in mind, feel free to uh, leave that in the comments as well. And for Let me say this, though. Mm -hmm. the, greatest influence in culture today on a spiritual level for the gospel is the church. Amen. Yes. And they are the ones who are in charge of and doing the most humanitarian work in the history of the world. Yes. Like world Vision or uh, Compassion International and others. They're the hands and feet of Jesus. So yes. that is the greatest influence for the gospel or for the good of, of um, that's transcendent in the world today. The church. Amen. The local church. Amen. Yep. And if your church is not meeting, if your church has been disbanded, man, talk with your elders. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this, encourage your elders to reopen your church. I'm gonna say that because I, I'm with you, Caldoun. I think that, I, I, I don't think I know that the church is the engine for positive change in the world. It, real change only comes through heart change and life change. Um, and that only comes through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is only sent 
by the Father and the Son. And so if you want real change in your life, if you want positive change in society, you need Jesus Christ. And the church brings Jesus to the world. That's why I started the Think Institute to equip believers through local churches. Um, I know that's your your passion, brother, as well. Yeah, that's right. You're one of those uh, influencers out there. Yeah. Well, and and I also want to give a quick plug to the uh, Facebook group that I just started called Christian Culture Builders. If you're on Facebook and you're looking for a way, let's say you're somebody who wants to influence culture, you want to build culture, you want to create, you want to own the own your own microphone, you want to you want to be one of these guys out going out to California, starting your own studio, you want to uh, you know maybe run for office and influence local government. Join my Facebook group, Christian Culture Builders. Um, it's not something I'm doing to promote the, the Think Institute. It's just something I'm trying to do to encourage believers to get together and trade ideas. Caldoun, you've joined that group. Um, uh, Rafe is in that group. And, you know, it's just, it, it's a meeting of the minds. And uh, and hopefully God will God will do good things and, and big things with that. Um, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. So I love it. That's right. Um, Caldun, yeah. uh, before we go, how can folks keep up with your work and access more of your content? What's the best way to do that? Well, I have a live Facebook page on Logically Faithful. It's a you go to Facebook, just type in Logically Faithful. I'm active there on Instagram as well and Twitter. So um, social media is one of the ways we can influence the world around us because a lot of them are on that, especially during their COVID days. Um, so uh, you can support me by going to my website. There's an availability there to sign up and be part of uh, the things I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a difference and bloom where I am planted, and I hope you could do the same. Amen. Brother, this, this was incredibly encouraging to me. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. And, you know, if you're just tuning in now, let's say you started watching about 10, 15 minutes ago, the first half of the podcast was, was very packed. It was it was rich as well. It was just as good as the second half, if not better. So go back, check that out. This will be coming out on the audio podcast, uh, which if you're not subscribed to, please subscribe to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedicase presented by the Think Institute. We're on all the major podcast platforms. So check us out there. You can also connect with us and get all the back catalog of podcast episodes by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. Connect with us on social media, which, as Caldoun mentioned, is a great way to uh, influence culture and society today. Uh, check out his website, logicallyfaithful.com. And, um, you know, this is not goodbye. This is this has just been a little pit stop along the way. Oh, I almost forgot. Mm. Uh, connect with us. If you're going to be at the, to all of our listeners and viewers, if you're going to be at the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference in Franklin, Tennessee, it was moved from Nashville to Franklin. It's going to be October 1st through the 3rd. Check us out. We're going to have a booth down there doing a lunch event where you can find out more about the Think Institute and how to get connected down there. And then October 23rd and 24th, we will be at the Cruciform conference in Indianapolis. I'll be teaching a breakout session down there. So uh, check, check us oh. out. Yeah. And uh, Caldun, you were going to say something else? Well, I was just going to close with something from C.S. Lewis's Weight of Glory, which I found to be very helpful. Please. Um, Lewis says uh, something to remind us that individuals matter more than institutions. And then I want to, maybe I could close with this, uh, this uh, portion here. He says the following in The Weight of Glory. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet as if it is in only in a nightmare. 
all day long we are in some degree or another helping each other to one of these destinations it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities it is in the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another all our friendships all our loves all our plays all our politics toward that there are no ordinary people there you have never talked to a mere mortal nations cultures arts civilizations these are all mortal and their life is to ours as a life of a gnat that it is in mortals we joke with work with marry snub and explore in mortal horrors or everlasting splendors amen well that's all we have for you today so until next time i hope it made you think 